and we're live. So I just learned that this will record for eight hours straight. So just in case you need to talk for eight hours straight, it's available for you. That's I don't know how long this presentation. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I don't know. If um, all right, so to listen to me for eight hours. <laughs> I don't know who would listen to anyone for eight hours. I feel like that's what grammar school's for. Mm, that's true. <laughs> that's why we were so unhappy in grammar school. Exactly. Um, we're just gonna wait. Oh, there's already two viewers in here. People have been very excited to see this talk. I'm telling you. Um, so we're just gonna give everyone a minute or two to log in. I know the alert only goes out like the second I hit the go live button. So just so people don't miss too much, just gonna give everyone a minute and then we'll get started. Um, while we're at it, if you wanna say hey in the chat, just so we know you're here, um, I'll be monitoring that. So I'll say hey, and then you can say hey back. Hey. Um, meanwhile, Christina's lurking in the background. I'll be uh, introducing her. We had a fun little chat before this started about what she's gonna be covering, and I know I'm super excited for it. It's a different take on the talks we've had in the past, so I think we'll be able to learn a lot from this one. Um, but no spoilers, so I'm gonna not go any further than that. Um, all right, I'm gonna give it to 7.03, which is approximately 45 seconds from now, and then we will get going, because I hate this stalling three minutes. And I really wish, oh, mm, I see you chatting, Christina, and I'm not positive that's the right chat. Oh, okay. There's an internal chat and an external chat, so I think you just chatted to me, in which case, hi back. <laughs> but the right. external chat is like oh, on the YouTube page. I see. And it, oh, by the way, if you would like to participate in the chat and it's not letting you, it's because you're not signed in. So make sure you sign into your Google account and then you'll be able to participate in the chat. Um, Good clarification because I didn't know where the other chat was. <laughs> yeah, I we went through the whole first talk with me and the speaker just talking in the product, in the internal chat. And I'm like, why isn't anyone talking? And then I figure out there's a whole separate chat that they don't tell you about. And it was all filled up. So it was a nice surprise, but felt really dumb for a little while. All right, so maybe we'll get started um, now that we know the chats work. So hi, everyone. I am Jen Vargas, and I run Just Product. That's Just Product Jobs and uh, these talks. So uh, every month we bring in a speaker who is awesome in the Yes, it was you, Nils. You were the one that. Nils was our first speaker. He's in the chat. He um, He's the one that we didn't realize there was a separate chat for. Um, anyway, every month we run these talks and bring in an awesome product person to talk about what they do, uh, an area of expertise, and hopefully spread the learning through the product community. And ideally, that'll help you land your next product job. So um, this month we have Christina Fernandez. She is a product person at Wayfair. A very recent product person at Wayfair. In fact, since we scheduled her to do this talk, she has switched coasts, switched jobs. Uh, it's been a very exciting time for her. And um, now she's at Wayfair doing what she's been doing for a while at places like GitHub and Facebook, which is bringing data into the product process and building awesome products out of it. So um, today's talk, she's going to cover a couple of case studies around different ways to build data into your products and use data to inform your products. And um, as she's going, feel free to ask any questions. She's not gonna answer any questions as we're going because it's just easier to get through the slides. Um, but please, if you have any questions as she's going, throw them in the chat um, and I will be monitoring the chat and we'll do a Q&A after. So don't worry, all your questions will be answered. 
it's just going to be at the end. Um, hey, Cam, thanks for joining. Uh, we have a couple more people logging in, so this is exciting. And I'm going to toss it over to Christina now, and I'll see you guys when we finish. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so I will just say hello to everyone. Um, I don't actually know who's looking, I think, because I'm not on YouTube. Um, and we'll just get started on by sharing all the things. All right. So you should be able to see my presentation now. Um, so hi, I'm Christina Fernandez. Today I want to talk to everyone about product management um, and, and, and specifically how we can use data as product managers. Um, it's something I'm really passionate about and something that I, I learned a lot about at Facebook um, and I've really taken through with me at lots of, to lots of other places, including GitHub. Um, so using data to understand users, build products, um, is, is sort of like a, a big personal passion of, of mine. Um, and data is one of those things that is a really big buzzword these days. Um, everyone talks about big data, selling your data, um, how to use data to you know, make products, drive things. Um, every company I've ever worked at wanted to be like the most data-driven, and, and that's like a very fancy thing. But the relationship between data and product and creativity, I think, is, is actually um, really complicated. And on the one hand, what you actually see is some people thinking data is the answer to everything. Like, oh, we're just going to use data. Data is going to tell us all the things. Um, you can't move forward if the data, you know, doesn't say we can. And so there's this, like, one very dramatic side, I think. And the other side is that data is sort of the antithesis to creativity, um, where it's like, oh, I want to just be able to think of random things. It's sort of like the, the iPhone, um, you know, kind of Steve Jobs. Like, I just want to be creative and, and think of all the things my users want and not, not be um, limited by the data that exists. But for me, I actually think it's really powerful and really interesting in these, like, three specific areas. So uh, I'm going to talk about three different case studies today, one in how you can use data to identify opportunities, another one in how you can use it to define success um, in, in your product, and then how do you create sort of, like, magical experiences using, using data. Um, and we'll go into those three case studies in a second. But before that, um, and, and she gave me a really good, Jen gave me a really good intro, but I want to give you a little bit of background of who I am. So started undergrad, studied chemistry, um, and that was at Harvard, and actually ended up being a chemist for a few years. So did drug, drug development um, for malaria. And I think that when I think about my current passion for data and experimentation and how it fuels things, I think it's a lot of the training that I received across that. Um, I went to uh, Sloan at MIT and to business school, and I think that that's where I started to be, get more excited about like tech and entrepreneurship and how you can take these concepts of how to think about problems and, and make them more impactful. Um, making drugs for malaria was super exciting, um, but it was the kind of thing where it might not impact somebody's life for 15 or 20 years. Um, so since then, worked at Facebook, uh, then at Council, which is like a health tech company, GitHub, and then most recently Wayfair here in Boston. Um, so going back into this kind of the three areas and the three case studies, I'd like to start with identifying opportunities. And so at Facebook, one of the things I actually did was listen to user feedback. So this slide is just like a bunch of people talking at you. Um, but we were taking user feedback at scale and incorporating it into our product roadmaps. Um, and the team I was specifically focused on initially was, was a friending team. And so when you think about friending at Facebook, it owns all the platforms 
literally anywhere you see like a, a button that says add a friend or anywhere else, that's the friending team at Facebook. Um, and I think it was like my first week or my first few weeks, there was this problem that kind of popped up where a bunch of people from India um, were, were sending, I mean, literally like millions and millions of people from India were writing into us and saying, cannot send a friend request. And when you think of, you know, in the only commonality between them was that they were based in India, um, and this problem just started getting bigger and bigger. Um, and it was, we couldn't figure out why. At first we thought it was a bug, how can we fix it, what's the problem, um, but we couldn't find any other thread that, that led us to that. Um, and what actually was happening was that a lot of these users in India were being actively blocked by Facebook's blocking algorithm. And the initial assumptions we had internally were these users are spammers, um, people should only be friending people that they know, and like our algorithm's super awesome and, and can fix all the things and, and you know all the sort of assumptions you have about your own product. But when we actually dug into the data of the people who were reporting, we didn't see, they didn't look like spammers. Um, they had established accounts that had been around for a long time. Um, that's really inconsistent with spam accounts. They're usually like, you know, a day old, a few hours old, that kind of thing. Um, they had hundreds of friends, so they had like built their networks over time, um, and they posted regularly uh, pictures and kind of comments and articles and things like that. And none of these point to, to a type of spam accounts. And I think, Internally, we, we came to this point where we're all really confused. So we have all these people, they're being blocked, they can't send friend requests, um, and we're doing this actively as, as a platform. How do, you know, why are they being blocked? What's about, what about their behavior is, is kind of weird. So this is one of the places where I think like data inspired this question and the curiosity led us to the point where we're saying, okay, we need to supplement all of this data with user interviews on the ground in India. Um, and we learned some really cool things and, and totally unexpected. Um, one was that our users that were living in India actually didn't want to friend the people that they knew because they, they saw them every day, um, they interacted with them, they lived in a village where like they knew everyone and they knew all the things about them. They weren't using Facebook to keep in touch, they were using it to explore the world. Um, this idea that like they could only friend people that they know, this rule, um, we realized it was very much like a Western cultural expectation and not something that was like inherent to the product itself. Um, and most people actually really enjoyed receiving friend requests, not from everyone, but they liked the fact that they could be like, oh, this person's cool, like I wanna accept this friend request and, and make friends with these people. Um, so what did we do um, when we kind of came to this realization? Um, and, and, and I think one piece of information here is there's a lot of like internal discussion about this um, in terms of did it make sense with our strategy and our product and what we wanted to do. It wasn't like a straightforward thing where we did this the next day. Um, but what we landed on was training the algorithm, a new algorithm specifically for India on this localized data. So data that was specifically to India, specific to India and their friending patterns and kind of took into account their behavior, which was distinctly different than like our Western um, European and, and kind of like American perspective of like what friending on Facebook should look like. Um, and we did a complete overhaul of the communication around like if you're blocked, like why and how and how to get out of it and kind of like all of that. So we did we did two things. We did this like back end algorithm change and a, a front end change on the blocking experience. And for me, this is one of those perfect, pro and, and, and this took like six months end to end, like the research and actually making the product changes and, and, and those were done over time. Um, but what was really cool about it is at the end of the day, what we saw 
was that the problem of people getting blocked completely went away or like the on people who weren't spammers getting blocked completely went away. So we had all these really happy users, literally like a billion people in India were now like having a better experience with Facebook. And from our friending growth perspective, more friend requests were getting sent, more friend requests were getting accepted. Um, and this and balancing these things out and doing this in a way uh, that made everyone happy was, was kind of special. And so what I thought, think when I think about this project in this case study, what gets me excited is those weird anomalies and data that you see and you don't understand, like digging into them can really serve as a starting point um, for a huge opportunity. And so in this case, when we think about like some users were having a bad experience in India, sorry about the uh, police in the background, um, but they were discovering this opportunity, sorry, we discovered this opportunity that we didn't even know existed that we couldn't have possibly like come up with on our own and, and we were led to it by just kind of wondering and researching through the data. So for me, it's like the power of, of, of how that of how that works. I think defining success with, with with data is a much more common, much more common concept, but I always like to think about like how do you actually do this? Um, and I think it's really, really non-trivial. And a lot of companies and a lot of teams and a lot of projects struggle with how do you define success for this this smaller project. Uh, maybe at a company level, you get like the daily active users or you get revenue or you get these other metrics. Um, but how do you know that the thing you're doing actually contributes? Um, and this is a huge challenge and it can be really daunting and scary, sort of like how I feel about it. Um, and what this often leads to is sort of this like quick vanity metric. And there's lots of articles about vanity metrics and things like that. But this quick like, oh, how many people are using any, you know, the product and we get really excited like, oh, there's a thousand people using it or 2000 people using it. We're all really happy about that. Um, but at the same time, like that doesn't actually tell us did the right people use it? Did enough people use it? Did we cover the ground that we wanted to cover to have the impact that, that we expected? Um, and the, the case study for me that I want to talk about here is something that happened at GitHub. We had this new feature. Um, and the, it basically the idea behind it, and it's a little bit like, not technical, but um, enterprisey is the, is the word. So a lot of our customers, and they were companies, were asking us, hey, on your website, can you allow us to require two-factor authentication to improve, improve security? Um, and so this was being asked for us by lots of users over, over, over really many years. Um, what we were hearing anecdotally was that a lot of people had developed manual workarounds um, where they were enforcing two-factor authentication outside of the product. Um, and this was like pretty painful and time consuming for like the IT teams. Um, and that this is like a really important feature to improve security across the site, even for our own internal usage of, of, of GitHub itself. So this is an example of basically like what the, not example, this is what the feature was. So you can go to security, um, you can click on, an administrator can click on that, they can enable two-factor enforcement, and what it does is it actually kicks out all of the users in the organization who aren't, who don't have two-factor authentication. Um, and this is like really specific to the way GitHub is set up and how their user permissions are set up. Um, other enterprise softwares have it a little bit easier on the specific front. Um, and, and so we just kicked somebody out of where they do their work. And so we save, we were able to save all these sorts of things that they've been working on so that when, once they have it enabled, they can actually like come back and be reinstated into, into their work organization. Um, so that's just like a feed overview of the feature itself. 
and one of the things that we struggled with this was how how do we define success for this sort of like okay we know we need to do it we know it's really great but how do we set like a number a metric around this that isn't just like cool we did it and some people set it up um, and then what we kind of decided to focus on is how many organizations can we actually expect to enable this and what we decided to do is say okay how let's estimate let's guess or let's not guess but let's smart guess how many organizations are already requiring two-factor given the data that we have, um, which isn't great because we don't have this feature, so we don't know how many people are doing this offline. We have no way of knowing that. Um, so there's a lot of ambiguity, even though you know this is something that a lot of people have been asking for. Um, so we decided on a few estimation parameters, which is one, organizations that are actively developing code. Um, so the organization has to be active, the repositories that they have have to be active, have to have more than 10 users, so they're not just like a couple friends kind of collaborating on GitHub, um, and that 80% or more of those users have two-factor enabled. And this is our hypothesis that if that percentage of people have two-factor enabled, that's because it's actually being enforced by the company. Um, because it's not, two-factor itself is not a very often used feature um, by, a, by a random GitHub user. Um, and the key for us here was we wanted to define a goal that reflected did we succeed in answering that user need of like allowing people to not have to do that workaround? Um, and, and you know, we, we ended up estimating a certain amount and we actually announced it at one of our big conferences and we hit that goal in the first like week. And I, I ended up thinking that we potentially didn't set that goal great. Like we could have done, um, cause it's that kind of thing like how, or, or there was just this like unknown need for, for the feature that wasn't defined by the number of people that were, they were kind of like managing it offline. Um, but I think that it reflects the complexity of how, of how you talk about um, a metric or a goal and actually have that reflect that, oh, did, did we do what we set out to do? Um, did we succeed? Did we, did we fail? Um, which I, I find is a really important part of, of developing product. And the last one, I think this is like one of the ones that's hottest right now, um, but in no way like less important, I think, than the other two, is creating experiences using data. And when I, th I think, when I think about that, I think about like machine learning or artificial intelligence. You hear about like Alexa and and all these other different people. Um, Facebook has all the chat bots. They do the auto, um, the auto tagging on 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 the website or on on Facebook. Um, self driving cars, X.AI, you know, can schedule meetings for you based on like the natural language processing they can do on on, on emails being sent back and forth. Um, and, and the key here is often like that feeling that you as a product person can create where the person who's using your product really feels like, oh my God, you're a wizard, you're, you're magical. Um, and I actually had this experience with, with X.AI, for example, where I didn't know that I was talking to a robot for like the first two or three, you know, back and forth. And when I realized that I was, it was like, whoa, that's so cool. You know, are you a wizard? And, and the thing that I think doesn't get talked about a lot is, how do you actually make that happen from a user experience perspective, right? So the algor there's an algorithm, and how do you get from the algorithm to that like magical point? Um, and so this example is also from GitHub. Um, what we wanted to do, so uh, this is a, a screenshot of a, repos a repository bootstrap, which is like a really popular open source project at, on, on GitHub, and they, want to be able to, 
So we wanted to be able to take all this information across all the open source in the world, basically, and figure out how do we tag these projects with, with topics? How do we group pro projects into specific topics and people into specific topics in such a way that like you can discover, improve discoverability, um, find other people working on similar things really, really easily that kind of goes beyond, beyond search um, and focusing on that kind of like magical discovery. Um, and so what we ended up deciding to do was actually build topics, um, which is where we use machine learning to kind of identify these topics across the whole site, suggest them to users, um, and then uh, create an entire like search experience around that. And so we'd never as a company done this thing where we'd taken a, an algorithm and we had a whole, say, data science team actually building stuff, but we'd never taken an algorithm and put it into production in a, in a user-facing engaging feature that wasn't just kind of like running in the background. And if you want to think about a difference, it would be like the blocking algorithm that Facebook used kind of runs in the background. Um, but this is where we actually took a, a all the machine learning and natural language processing algorithms that they made and made a user-facing feature. So we had to do that actual development. We had to create a completely production-ready database um, that was built for topics and there's the suggestions and the rankings and that was dynamic, so it was able to take new information in in real time and make that all production ready and make topic suggestions accessible to users on the front end, which is sort of like where people would actually see what we did. Um, and then build a feedback mechanism that made sense from a user perspective so that they would interact with the feature and we would actually be able to kind of loop that back and improve um, the algorithms. And we had to build all of these building blocks because we'd never done any of this work um, in, in a product feature. Um, and this, what, what I think is cool about this is the level of cross-functional effort that it took. So the data scientists were, were doing work. The data engineering team was doing a ton of work for, for that. Like, if we go back here to this, like, production-ready database, it turns out that this was the really, really hard thing. Um, this was the thing that took a ton of time building it, making sure that it was to spec, making sure that it was in real time, um, that we were indexing everything. Like, that was the thing that took a long time. Um, the application engineers had to kind of understand how to move this data into the front end. And we spent a lot of time, the other big chunk, I think, was figuring out how the user was going to actually interact with this information. Um, so we have all this really cool information, but how do we surface it? How do we, like, give it to them and have them and give us feedback, I think, was something that we spent a lot of time on. So this is sort of where we ended up with. And it's a very, very simple user-facing feature, given kind of like all of the complexity that we had here. Um, and so you see here, uh, this is the Atom repository, which is another open source project that's run by GitHub itself. We have these topics that have been added to the repository. Um, so the way that the user would have interacted with this is specifically the admin of the repository would have seen the suggestions, would have accepted the ones that made sense, so by accepting them, now we know like those are good ones. They could reject the ones they don't like or ignore them. And those reject, ignore, accept signals are something we can like bring back into the algorithm. And it creates on the search front a way for you to discover new projects um, within specific areas. So you can explore topics and you see the metadata when you actually search for, for something like, like Adam. And, and for me, the takeaway here was really how cross-functional this work was. And as a product manager, making sure that each piece was not just on time, but kind of like in its, that the data science was ahead of the, of the um, 
infrastructure work was ahead of like the work we were doing on the other on, on on the front end and i think that like that whole flow was was one of the big challenges it's like there's so many pieces there's so many moving things um how do you actually bring that all together um and that's where when you're creating these like really cool experiences that's where, where the challenge is um and less around like how do you technically do this or how good is the algorithm of those of those challenges exist as well um so all these are very, very different stories, and, and they all involve data in really different ways. Um, identifying opportunities, defining success, and creating those experiences. And we actually we like define success in you know both of these two cases where we and, and you know we were using um, algorithms in the first case, um, but just highlighting the different ways and how powerful data can be. Um, and for me, it's inspirational to figure out to, to realize how actually creative data can be, and that's something that, that I get, end up feeling like super passionate about. Um, and I'm happy uh, to take the questions that we have in the chat. And awesome, thanks so much, Christina. Um, that was, I love hearing like the real world stories of <laughs> when these things are being used, because you know, it's really, it's one thing to sort of you know read the book on it and hear the, the sort of high level how to do it, but hearing and seeing sort of how it's executed in a very specific case, I think it's just a totally different um, way of understanding how it happens in the real world. Um, so we're gonna start going to the questions. So yeah, if you have questions, please put them in the chat um, or tweet them at us if you want, at Just Product <laughs> Jobs. Um, but I'll be checking the chat first, so let's shoot there. Uh, first question is from Nil. So, what drove the desire for the new experience on GitHub? It was a lot of questions, I guess like, it was a lot of discussion internally around how do we create a vehicle for people to self-identify and group into topic areas. I mean, topic is what we ended up calling it, but group into like areas and think of like Stack Overflow and, and these sort of things. And, and even if we think about like hashtags on Twitter or Facebook, like how do you, group into this into this thing. Um, and one of the challenges that we, we, when we talked about this was like, how do we seed this conversation and this, this feature, like let's just say we want to add hashtags, for example. How do you seed that in a world where like, there's no paradigm for grouping it in that particular way? And that's sort of where like, literally in a serendipitous conversation, the data science team was like, hey, we have this thing where we like group all the topics of the entire like public repositories together. And I was like, well, how about we use that to like seed all these things? And so I don't know that it was like a grand plan of how do we use machine learning to do this thing. It was more like we wanted to do this thing, which was improve discoverability, let people group people to group themselves together. Um, and there was a real discussion of how do we get people to do that without it feeling like work, like adding metadata to your repository feels like work. Why would you do that? Um, it wasn't clear, like we didn't have that clear like user experience. And so this was a way for us to make a lot of suggestions. And when we actually saw people accepted our suggestions, they rejected them, and then they made their own, right? Like they were adding their own topics that we were able to, again, put back into the algorithm. So that's super powerful because we gave them, it, it was like a delightful thing that they experienced. Like, oh yeah, that is what my repository is about. Cool, like add it. And that got them thinking, what are all the other things it's about? Um, what are the other things I can I can uh, associate with and explore? Um, and I think that there's a, a long plan for this type of work, and this was sort of like V1, but but that's how that's how it got started. That's awesome. I think it's also a great example of how you know product doesn't always start at product. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, so then there, there's another question. Say a little bit more about your data background or another way to put that, what a PM needs to know or be able to do to use data effectively. Like it might be different for different scenarios. Yeah. Um, I think I have like a, I don't know. I guess no one has like a traditional product. Like what is a traditional product background? Um, my, my data and I think my interest in data analytics was probably from my chemistry world, but in chemistry, we're dealing with a completely different scale. So when we're running experiments, like we're running experiments on like 20 molecules, on 50 molecules, on that scale, right? So that's the kind of analysis literally I would do in a spreadsheet of like what, which of the molecules which are doing well, which of the ones are doing bad, like the same kind of thing you would do, um, but, but really at like this micro scale. When I went to Facebook um, and I started in, in this, the role that I did, which was a product operations role, not like a, a PM specific role, they literally asked me in the interview, like, do you know how to write SQL? I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never done that. I don't know what that is, but I'm pretty smart. I'll learn. Um, and for whatever reason, they believed me. Like, I'm, not everyone believes you when you say that. Like, I said that other places, and they're like, whatever. Um, but they believed me, and they hired me, and that was a core part of the job that I had to teach myself. And so literally, like, my entire training was W3 school SQL while I was on the job, and then like looking at other people's queries at work and being like, oh, that's how you do that weird join, like let me do that. Um, so that's like on the, on the, on the getting the information side. Um, and like really Facebook trained me, like they trained me for, for, for the things that I, I, I learned. I have no like formal CS training either, so the stuff that I learned like for machine learning was literally sitting down with our team and being like, how does this work? What information are we getting out of it? How do we rank things? How can we put this in there? Um, and so I, I often feel data is a little bit more of a mentality and like a, and a discipline and, and the mechanics of the data stuff can be, can be learned. Um, and I don't even, I'm not even good at learning stuff online, to be honest. Like I'm not good at, like I'm much better when someone talks at me. Um, and I think that that's why I like doing it during work and kind of like doing it for actual projects, um, was really powerful. That's awesome. And I think a really good example of where, you know, on the job learning and, and selling yourself in part of your interview is critical to like leveling up and getting where you mm -hmm. want to go. Sometimes you do have to just fake it till you make it, right? Well, I think like, I didn't even tell them I knew how to do it. I was just like, yeah, true, yeah. I was like, I'll learn it. If you need me to learn it, like I'll learn, I'll teach, like I'll teach myself how to do that. Um, and I think, again, not everyone believes you, but, and maybe not everyone can either, but I think that like, when someone just takes that chance on you, like that opened up a whole new world, a whole new way of using data, uh, like a scale of data that wasn't even imaginable in the chemistry world. And so for me, it was just like every day was like was learning things. Um, and I've I've like been able to take that and apply it to lots of different other areas. And that's that's been really powerful. Would you say um, getting into the machine learning AI side was a similar experience? Because that's something a lot of people, you know, in the yeah. world have to learn now because not many of us, I can't think of many who might have come out of school knowing that kind of thing. Um, is that yeah. something that you sort of picked up in a similar way? Absolutely. Um, and this was a, a GitHub project. Again, like I said, we started on the discoverability front. So we were going to only do like user input topics for your repository and a random conversation with a data scientist at GitHub. I was like, oh, that sounds great. Let's put that together. And now I had to like go learn all the things and not all the things, but learn enough so that I could put it in the product. And what was cool about that is that like once I did that project, when I was actually, when I was interviewing at Wayfair, they're like, oh, like nobody has experience, not nobody, but like very few people have experience 
actually putting data science into product. Like we have all these projects we want to do that are in that vein. Like we want to talk to you about that. Um, and so ended up like doing that at Wayfair. Um, so like if you'd asked me even a year ago if I'd be doing like machine learning stuff now, I would like been confused. Like no, no way. Um, but like all this, all the different steps have definitely been on the job. Um, and for me, driven by like the product or my interest in not so much the technology, but like how do you get to the result, which is that user and their experience and the problem that you're solving. Because I think one place where we often go wrong with data and even machine learning is like, and this is something we talked about at MIT a lot, was having a technology and needing to find a problem for it. Like I think what tends to work better is having like a problem and being like, well, how can I fix this problem? Um, and that could be using cool new technology, but sometimes it's actually also like in the two-factor authentication stuff, doing like really boring like data estimation or like are we getting enough people? Um, and that's a totally different application. That's actually a perfect segue to the next question because it's exactly <laughs> that. Um, so Jess asks, how do you come up with good estimation parameters? What's your process? It's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think that the goal, I don't think there's a great process that like fits everyone. I think the thing that I've done a lot is involve the data team early. Um, and that's more of like a rule of thumb than a process. And it really depends on your data team and, and how powerful and experienced they are. Um, but in the case of GitHub, like we had some really good data, and actually in every place I've worked have really good data partners. And so when you go and ask them like, hey, this is the problem we're trying to solve. Like help me think through all of the options that we have. Like what can, and they'll know theoretically, they'll know like their backend, like what are we tracking? What do we have? Um, like one of the big discussions around the organization was how do we even me measure an active organization? Um, and how do, you know, we don't have an existing measure for that. So like, do we need to build that in? Do we need to work on that definition? Um, and, and things like that. So like that, that discussion, like and doing that, honestly, as you're building before you're building made the rest of it a lot easier because by the time, you know, we said like, oh, we think we're going to have X thousand amount of companies do this. It also helped us feel like this was going to be valuable um, and be impactful. So like, I guess not the best answer, but like the earlier you involve your data team, the better and, and use them as like a thought resource rather than like a go pull some data for me resource, because I think that's often what happens is you're like, oh, I need this data. And then you like walk away um, because you have a million things and not because you're like a mean product manager, but like you have a lot of things happening. But I found like going to them and asking them questions and being like, help me think through this problem because you are an expert in this space um, has, has been like the most powerful thing. Um, and, and we're doing this now at Wayfair for this new area that I'm like going into. We don't have any of the metrics. We don't have any of the goals. Like it's like starting from scratch again. And, and that's totally fine. I think like you're almost always in that position, but going back and saying, okay, what is the thing we're actually trying to solve? And do we all agree that on that? And then can we find a leading indicator, a metric that's like related to that? Um, and sometimes you can't. And so you have to say like, okay, we're gonna be happy with these three other things until like we can find something better or we can build out the thing that we need or whatever it is. So following on like to, no, well, it was a good answer, answer for me. Uh, Jess, if you had any follow-up, feel free to <laughs> yeah, I was like, sorry. Yeah. Um, but it did actually, good with the segues, because it did segue into sort of a question I had, which is, um, data teams tend to be a big horizontal in a company and 
very, very rarely is like a data person or a data team sort of allocated to a particular area of the product. So how do you sort of go about like resourcing that? I imagine like within the GitHub example, that product, like when you started it, it probably started out as a product problem. And then you happen to talk to the data engineers like, oh, let's marry the two. Like how do you then map your sort of resources and sort of bring in the data person and match timelines and all that sort of stuff that has to sort of get balanced in a large organization and even a small one when resources are constrained. Yeah, I think there's like a couple questions packed in there. So I'm going to like separate them out into stuff that I think. Um, so one of the questions is like, how do you manage data resources? I think there's different data types, right? So when I think about like, and I think that's an important thing to think about, like an analyst and someone who's thinking about metrics is usually a different person, not always, but usually a different, and probably should be a different person than is thinking about like the data science algorithm development. Um, because those are, at the end of it, like entirely different skill sets. One's about statistics, measuring, and, and like quality prediction, and the other one's about processing. Like how do you take all this information and, and come up with something new out of it? And so I think that one thing I would say is like separating those out is important, and seeing them as separate is helpful. Um, at GitHub, we had, at the time where we ran this exact project, we had one, one human who was like the data analyst, like for GitHub, right? And we had like other people who were doing other stuff, but like who was the data analyst? And so what I used her, and so like I, I took that and said like, okay, I can't have you pull all the data in the world ever. That's just not helpful. So I, I went to her and I was like, I need you one hour a week to like brainstorm how we measure stuff and then the engineers will like actually like write the sequel or pull the, or I'll write the sequel or like whatever, like we'll figure it out. But what I need you for is not like pulling data, but like the thought, the thought process. That's like one way, which is like how, what, what's the most valuable thing this person, and that's true for like anything this person can, can offer if their time is really limited. Um, in the data science one, I'm gonna make a crazy statement. I've now seen this happen like three different times. I actually think what tends to happen with data science is you have a data science team because somebody thought it was a really good idea to hire one to two to three people. And what they're actually doing is sitting off in a corner doing research, right? Like they're not actually like working with any of the other engineering teams. And that's totally what was happening at GitHub. They were doing like really cool things, but that like nobody else knew about except for like the other data people. Um, <laughs> and so like when it comes to data science, I'd be like, go talk to them <laughs> because they're probably not working with any, like literally I was the only PM working with the data science team um, because they, and they were doing this really cool stuff. But like, because I happened to hear this conversation because I went over there and was like, now we're all gonna do this thing. And then the last question you asked was sort of about like timing and, re and planning, um, which is sort of gets to my point about like the complexity of this type of project um, in, in the case study. And I think, the key was, so in this particular case, they had already written the algorithms and done a lot of the testing, which meant we could like really quickly, in a relative sense, put it into the product. Um, and the next thing was actually like, hey, once we want to do topics for the next five things outside of repositories, or we know we want to do it for private repositories as well as public, like what is the data engineering work? What is the data science work that needs to go into that? Um, and make sure that that's like literally two months ahead because data science takes a lot of time. And training on data takes a lot of time and it's just slow. And you have to like clean the data and you have to make sure it works well and you have to like back test it to make sure that it wasn't crazy. Um, like one of the weird things that we saw and how you validate actually drives things a lot. So for example, one of the weird things we saw was 
because we were back, we were validating our GitHub, GitHub algorithm with people's um, descriptions. So we were like analyzing all of the text and all of the things across the whole repository. But then we were like checking that we were right with what people said in their description, um, which is totally fine. Like it was a great way to do it like 99.5, you know, whatever, 90% of the time. But what happened is, is we actually like made the algorithm tell you what your description was. <laughs> hey, that's one way to fill out those descriptions. I know I never filled them out. <laughs> which is really cool, but the problem was a lot of times people would be like, why does it say exactly what my, like, what value are you adding? Like when we did some user testing, it was like, well, what? So we had to go back and like revalidate the algorithm in like a different way because of this like weird funky thing. Um, anyway, so that was sort of like a, a long answer, but. That was good because there's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, all right, so I think we might be, that it, last chance for your questions, last call. Um, and meanwhile, I'll just make some quick announcements and also, well, first, most importantly, thank you, Christina. I'll thank you in anticipation of no more questions because I, I saw a couple people said they had to run. Um, but if one pops up, I'll interrupt myself. Anyway, thank you so much. This was super helpful. I think um, just the wizard cat was my favorite part. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually just started laughing here all by myself. <laughs> it's um, always better in a live audience because you can, like, get that laugh. And yeah, feel you it, had it. It but... was just over here. Yeah, it, that was my favorite part of the whole thing. I, I mean, the rest was educational, but that, that was <laughs> memorable so um thank you for that wizard cat and for all the other awesome things oh yep uh we have some thank yous coming in from cam and nils and everyone else so i think uh everyone's got their questions through which is awesome, awesome. um and yeah really appreciate it and um you're obviously welcome in just product slack and if you want to follow up there if anyone has any questions um chris oh, Actually, just say your Twitter because I I know it has some numbers in it. I'm gonna forget the numbers. So, what's your Twitter if people? Oh, want I think to? it's like Chrissy one four seven. Or where would you prefer anyone message you? Wherever. <laughs> Twitter is totally fine. I just don't remember. Yeah, Chrissy one four seven. Yeah, Chrissy one four seven. It's also on our site if uh, justproduct.co if you want to uh, tweet at Christina after this with any follow up questions. Um, other than that, I have uh, two announcements for the future, which is. Our next product talk is on September 20th, and it's on prioritization frameworks. Um, and that one will be hopefully announced and available for registration later this week, early next week. Um, so stay tuned to the newsletter and to Twitter for that. And um, by popular request, which this was news to me, but people love podcasts. Uh, so just product talks, all of our talks up to now, and including this talk soon, will be, are available on anchor.fm. So um, anchor.fm slash just product and uh, all of our talks so far up there and this talk will be on there by the end of the week. So if you prefer podcast listening um, or you want to just refresh all these wonderful talks that we've had so far, uh, feel free to get that, uh, subscribe to the podcast there and you'll be able to listen to them on your commute or while you're cooking dinner or I don't know, send your child to sleep with them and let them become a fantastic product manager in a couple of years. Um, that's all. So thanks so much, uh, Christina. Thanks so much, everyone who joined. And we'll see you on September 20th. Awesome. Thanks for hosting me. It was fun. <laughs>